13 is our text today, verses 8 to 20. And uh, I'd just like to read the first three verses of that passage, verses 8 through 10. And so, if you can stand, would you stand with us as we read God's Word together? Acts 14, verses 8 through 10. Beginning with verse 8. Let's read together. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Father, thank you for your word. May we now, Lord God, come to your throne of grace to obtain your spirit. Lord, just pour your spirit out upon us so that we might have wisdom and understanding of your word today. We ask, Father, for that, uh, just the power of your word to uh, come into our hearts and our minds and help us, Lord God, to live and apply these things as we live for your glory and honor in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You all may be seated. There are people all over the world, including people in our own city of El Paso, who who know very little about God and Scripture. In some cases, they know nothing at all about God and about God's Word. They can live in highly advanced cities, industrialized towns, or even in very primitive societies. And these people have to be considered as the lost of the world, many of them gripped by pagan superstitions, pagan beliefs, and philosophies. And let's not be confused with the idea of of something pagan as being something that is too far-fetched for us to understand or too far away, uh, you know, from some faraway world or land or whatever. Anything that is not of Jesus Christ, anything that is not of God's Word can be classified as being pagan, heathen, or otherwise. So when you have this around you, even in the society in which we live today, people are without God and without true hope for the future. Some may even have, as Paul put it in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. In other words, they might think that they have some connection to some (coughs) Christian ideal in their religious or philosophical framework. They might have some form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. How can they be reached? This is indeed what God has called us all to do in our day and time. To reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how can they be reached? What what is the message that needs to be preached to such a pagan and superstitious, superstitious society and culture? Well, think about those questions as, as we go on in our study of the book of Acts here in chapter 14. Because when we last were with Paul and Barnabas, they were in the midst of their very first missionary journey, traveling through an area known as Asia Minor, what is 
today modern Turkey. They had preached in Antioch in Pisidia until they were run out of that particular region. Paul and Barnabas moved on into another city east of there, a city called Iconium where they were dealt with divisiveness or where they dealt with this divisiveness among the Jews and the Gentiles there that that they narrowly escaped being stoned. And as we catch up with them, they're in a town now called Lystra, further east into the Lyconian region of Galatia. And as verse 7 reminds us, Paul was preaching the gospel. Paul was preaching the gospel, and more than likely in the streets or even in the marketplace of Lystra. I mention that because what is significant about the text is, as we read it is that there's no mention of a synagogue here. You've noticed the pattern that Paul and Barnabas take, and and, uh, we'll see it again, but entering into certain cities, they always went to the synagogue first because they kept in their heart and their mind the things that Jesus taught about going to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. But we don't get any picture or understanding that they have gone into any synagogue whatsoever, which means that either there in Lystra there were not ten Jewish men in the city, to make up a synagogue, because that was the rule, as it were. To have a synagogue, they needed ten Jewish males. Or Lystra was predominantly pagan. We would have to believe that there were some Jews there, since we know that Timothy was from this particular area. We'll talk about that later. But in Acts 14, verses 8-10, through 10, I know we read this together, let me read it again so that you get a focus on it. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. What would Paul be speaking about? What would Paul's message be? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul, in his preaching, observing him intently, observing this man intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, He said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And this crippled man, it says, leaped and walked. Now what comes to mind when you hear this story? The first thing that comes to mind is something that happened a few years before in Jerusalem. When Peter and John were going into the temple to pray. And as they're approaching the the gate called Beautiful, there was a man outside begging alms. A man that had been crippled from birth. And as Peter and John see this man and, and, and make eye contact, Peter actually looks deep into this man's heart. And the man asking for alms causes Peter to, to make that great statement, Silver and gold have I none, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And Peter lifts this man up and the moment that he does every bone every sinew every muscle is perfect is made perfect in this man who had never walked in his life not only begins to walk he doesn't even go through little steps of trying to see what am I doing I've never done this before he starts walking and leaping and praising God a true miracle of God that now this man who had never been able to go into the temple because of his condition, was now going in with Peter and John to worship God. 
And so now we see something in the life and ministry of Paul that is similar, except for one difference. The man in Jerusalem, of course, knew the Word of God in the sense that he was Jewish. The man in Lystra was a Gentile. Nonetheless, he leapt and he walked. What's interesting about this story is that the hopelessness of this man's situation is brought to our attention three times. And I believe that's a very significant thing. Anytime something's mentioned twice in the scriptures, it's important. If it's mentioned three times, it's, it's of utmost importance. But three times the hopelessness of this man's situation is given to us. First of all, it says, without strength in his feet. That would be enough for us to understand that he couldn't walk. But then he says, crippled from birth. Now the story of this man expands in our, in our mind and understanding. Uh, he, couldn't, he, he didn't have strength in his feet. He was crippled from birth. But then he says that he never walked. That's as hopeless as you can get. But now it's important to remember that while the Lord did many miraculous works through Paul and Barnabas, these apostles weren't traveling as miracle crusade workers, setting up tents somewhere and putting out signs and saying, Come to a miracle service. Come to a miracle revival. We'll throw your, your crutches across the room, you know. We'll do all kinds of stuff for you. You know, that wasn't Paul and Barnabas. We know that because their focus was always the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So while Paul is preaching the gospel, this crippled man was listening eagerly and intently to Paul. This is another difference between this man and the man at the gate called Beautiful. And I'll, I'll, I'll expand on the thought of the, the, the aspect, the difference of, of faith here. But this man is listening to Paul. And he's intently listening. So much so that Paul sees him and realizes that he has faith to be healed from his condition. It caught Paul's attention. Paul certainly had the spirit of discernment. And he's now reading the man's innermost being and innermost soul as God allows him to do so. And he saw in this man a budding, a developing faith, a faith to believe, a faith to be healed. And that this crippled man had faith was made clear by his ready obedience to Paul's command to stand up. And Paul tells him, stand up. Stand up. Straight on your feet. Never walked. Didn't have strength in his feet. Crippled from birth. But the man had faith. And understand this. The man had faith both to be cured and to be saved. Literally, it says in the scriptures, he had the faith to be made whole. It wasn't just a matter of, of being cured physically. His faith was in healing, in the healing power of God, and in the saving power of God. He was made whole physically and spiritually. And you see, faith is an important matter for us. When we think of the gospel of Jesus and, and, and the stories that we 
we've received from Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. An interesting story here. It says, Then behold, they, they brought, uh, these were friends of a man that was paralyzed. They, uh, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, I want you to notice something. He says, when he saw their faith, the ones that brought the man, he said to the paralytic son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. He recognized the faith of the men that brought this man to Jesus. He, he recognized their faith. Now, I don't know that the man on the, on, the, on, on the bed had faith. But he recognized the faith of the men that brought, Je- uh, that brought this man to Jesus. And he said to the man on the bed, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now, what is Jesus up to here? They brought him to be healed. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Verse 3 says, and, it's some t- and at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or or to say arise and walk? What's easier? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. just have to understand something. Jesus had the power to do both. To forgive his sins and to heal him of his condition. But the recognition here was that these men had faith and he saw that faith. In the same chapter of Matthew concerning the woman with a flow of blood who touched the hem of his garment. If you remember the crowd that was following Jesus and this woman pressed in, pressed in until she could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. We're told in Matthew 9.22, but Jesus turned around at that moment and when he saw her he said be of good cheer daughter your faith has made you well and the woman was made well from that hour Jesus healed her touched her that flow of blood discontinued he said be of good cheer daughter your faith has made you well faith is important Trusting the Lord, trusting that He's able is an important thing for all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. But the important thought to be brought out here in the book of Acts is that in Romans chapter 10 verse 17, Paul has stated, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Again, coming back to hearing the Gospel, coming back to hearing what God says to us from His Word. And the one warning that we need to have here is that nowhere in the Bible does it teach that healing is a matter of how much faith you have. It's not a matter about how much faith you have. There are those people today who are saying, listen, you need to have faith like us. We have faith to believe God to move mountains and you know, so on and so forth. But didn't Jesus say, if you even have faith the size of a mustard seed? We have to be very careful about this issue of faith. People today can go around condemningly saying, Oh, listen, you know, the reason why you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. And it makes somebody, you know, just kind of get down. Or maybe you just have sin in your life. That's why God's not healing you. Let me ask you a question. How many of you believe that Paul had faith throughout all of his ministry? I believe he did. I mean, 
That's all we see him doing is trusting God at every step that he takes. Let me read you something in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 9. Paul saying, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul, maybe you don't have enough faith. And he said to me, the Lord speaking directly to Paul said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, Therefore most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul had faith. You see, we've got to be very clear that the Bible doesn't really teach that healing is a matter of how much faith you have. Paul had all the faith in the world and yet he had to be at rest with the fact that the Lord says my grace is sufficient for you I want you also to remember the lame man at the pool of Bethesda you remember that man that was lame and he was he was trust what was he trusting and he was trusting that he could be the first one to be put into this pool when the angel would stir the water And he had to have somebody kind of take him in there and beat all the rest because only the one that came into the water first. And Jesus comes along and and heals him. Was his faith in Jesus? No, his faith was in that water. Or at least getting somebody to put him in that water. Did faith, in a sense, in him heal him? So getting back to this crippled man... It's a wonderful thing to know that Paul, you know, not only had the gift of discernment to see that this man had the faith to be healed, but he also had, and I speak of Paul, Paul also had the gift of faith that God would heal the crippled man as he acted upon that discernment. I believe that that was very similar to what Peter did as well. Even though the man that was asking for alms really didn't show that he had faith. So, what response then did this whole issue bring about? I mean, this was a, this was a tremendous miracle in the, uh, in the eyes of all those surrounding them. And if, you know, if we just stopped reading at verse 10 as we read earlier, you know, we'd think this is a tremendous story. My goodness, this, this man who was crippled from birth is now walking and leaping and he's just, you know, healed just like the other man. And boy, we could just go home now. But something happened. And here's the response. Look at verses 11 through 13. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. (laughs) Now, I don't believe that Paul and Barnabas understood the Lyconian language or that dialect. So it was probably, you know, wondering what's going on here. They say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they call Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. In a better understanding, if you did the study of uh, Greek mythology with most of us, uh, fall asleep in the class. Well, well, I did anyway, but 
But I still remember the very fact that Zeus is really Jupiter and uh, Hermes is Mercury or Mercurius. So, uh, you know, Barnabas is called Zeus and Paul was called Hermes and Hermes being Mercury was the messenger of the gods. Therefore, he was the one who spoke on behalf of the gods. So Hermes was the speaker. That's why they call Paul Hermes. And they thought then that Barnabas was, was Zeus. Barnabas, the humble, you know, humble servant of the Lord is now, what are they calling me? You know, Zeus. <laughs> and then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Now, Paul and Barnabas are wondering, something's going wrong here. So now they have dealt, you know, they've, they've gone to these other cities in, in the region of Asia Minor. They have dealt with Divisinus and Iconium. Uh, and after all of that, Paul and Barnabas are now faced with another danger, the danger of deification in Lystra. What, is, what does it mean to deify? In other words, to make gods of men. They were now facing the danger of deification in Lystra. They were looked upon as gods because of the miraculous healing of the crippled man. Superstitious people tend to deify men. You see, this is the reason why even in our most advanced society today, people that do not walk in accordance to the Scriptures and in accordance to the Word of God and in the work and person of Jesus Christ can tend to live in pagan superstitions. So superstitious people tend to deify man, as is the case with, with most, of, if not all, of non-Christian cults. But even as you look at pseudo-Christian cults, uh, cults that kind of look Christian, you know, and act Christian, they might carry a Bible or whatever, but they're still cults, you can see de- uh, deification take place. To deify, or deify as it were, is to make a god of something or someone. Think of Joseph Smith of the Mormons. Think of Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Think of Mary Baker Eddy of Christian Science. The whole list of you know, people that are kind of like gurus of their particular uh, uh, belief system. Uh, we've been talking in the last few weeks about Oprah. You know, I, do, do I even need to mention Oprah and herself deification? Now she deifies herself because she says, you know, we can be gods ourselves. And now, you know, I just thought, you know, the new, the new news is now she's a vegan. Now she doesn't want to have anything to do with, with animal products. So the 15 to 20 million people that watch her, some percentage of that is going to say, oh, well, Oprah's doing this well. So now they've made her this God that they follow. Folks, that's a pagan superstition being lived out in our own day and time. To deify certain persons is to esteem them too highly, putting them upon pedestals and places of honor because of their apparent power. Folks, that's a danger even in the church today. To put them on pedestals and places of honor because of their apparent power, their achievements, their knowledge, their fame, their ability to read the future. Such deification of man is idolatry, it is superstition, and it is heathenism, and it is paganism. Worshipping self as well, because that's really when, when somebody is lifted up to that kind of position, then they begin to worship themselves. 
And even in secular society, you know, the humanistic philosophy is that, you know, man, just, you're just your own God. So, worshipping self is the tendency of man's heart. Whether a heathen in the wilds of a jungle or a heathen in the most industrialized society. And where did it all come from? Think of Isaiah 14. Think of Lucifer. Who desired to be above God. To take the place of God. To sit on the throne of God. That very same pollution of the mind was given to Adam and Eve in the garden to the serpent. Has God really said? No. He understands that you can be like Him. You can worship yourself. Can this infect the church? Listen, Revelation chapter 3. In the seven letters to the churches, Jesus, to the very last church, Laodicea, the most stinging condemnation given to any of the churches, a time period, you know, that, that, you know, that coincides with the days and times in which we live today. It tells us in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 17, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, the source of the creation of God. I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, listen, he's speaking to the church, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The moment we begin to boast of what we have, the moment we begin to boast in what we are, in what we think we are, in what we think we can accomplish and achieve in and of ourselves, the moment we do that, that is the moment that we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked because we don't have anything in and of ourselves. All things that we have, no matter how much it is, comes from God Himself. And there is some sense of this deification when you say, I am rich, I am wealthy, I don't need anything. You know what our boast should be? Our boast should be, I am poor. I need you, Lord. I need you. I need you to help me, strengthen me, pick me up. I'll go forth in your strength. I'll go forth in your purposes. I'll go forth in your power. I'll go forth in your word and in the name of Christ. But it's not me. The only thing I have to boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. So, can deification affect the church? It can. We have to be careful of that. Getting back to Paul and Barnabas, they probably didn't realize at first 
what was going on until that priest shows up with a sacrifice and begins, uh, you know, and began to be called by, you know, they began to be called by these names, Hermes and, and Zeus, you know, respectively. Uh, there was a legend, by the way, there was a Lyconian legend that these two same gods, uh, Zeus and Hermes, or Jupiter and Mercury, had, had visited Lystra long, long, long ago. Disguised as mere mortals. You know, this is part of the Greek mythology, you know, that the way the gods would come down to the earth and they would, you know, take the form of man so they, you know, kind of be among men and see what was going on and as if they, you know, didn't know. Because they didn't, you know. But when they came down, they visited this old, old, aged couple, Philemon and Balsus, a husband and wife, in the neighboring province of Phrygia. The couple entertained the gods unawares. They didn't realize they were gods, but they entertained them. And they were rewarded for their hospitality. Now, you know, if we stop the story there, we think, well, this is an interesting story. It's nice. No big deal. Except for one very important point, and that is that the the inhospitable, though, the ones who were not hospitable to them, they were all destroyed. (laughs) And there was only this one family, so, you know, <laughs> that's not a great story. But anyway, yeah. and it also shows, you know, it also shows the nature of Greek gods, you know, as opposed to the one true and living God, whose purpose is to give life. So, do you think that even for a moment now, Do you think that even for a moment Paul and Barnabas were thinking these thoughts? Listen, were they thinking, well, you know, what what would it hurt if, if, if they think that we're gods for a while? What would it hurt? I mean... Maybe they, maybe that will open the door to, you know, to preach the gospel to them. If we, you know, we go ahead and just, go, you know, they're bowing to us. Well, yeah, go ahead. It's all right a little bit. But then, then at, at one point we'll tell them the truth. You think that they even thought about that? You know, the lesson here is that there is no room in ministry for deception. There is no room in ministry for deception. I, you know, I, I, I'm burdened every time I hear, and this is a, a movement now that's been going on for a good 20, 25 years, but I, I get so burdened when I think of the church growth movement as, as, as to those, you know, who, who began this idea of, of going out and, and having surveys in neighborhoods to see what people were interested in having in the church. And then if we can get them into church, well, everybody knows that it's a church, so, you know, they've got to think that we have to believe in something and someone. But uh, we don't, we don't want to just pour that out on them at first. We're just going to make them feel comfortable, make them feel at home, give them something that they could, you know, feel good about, you know. And then, and then at some point we'll tell them about Jesus. That's not the way the gospel is to be presented. That would have been giving Paul and Barnabas the opportunity to say, okay, well, we'll be God's for a little while, then we'll tell them the, you know, we'll, then we'll tell them the news. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be clear about our relationship with Christ from the very beginning, from the very start. If somebody were to ask you the question, are you a Christian, what are you going to tell them? Are you going to say, well, yeah, kind of, sort of. Are you a Christian? Well, you know, uh, let me let me just begin by saying, I I do have a kind of a religious conviction. I, 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 I you know, I do go to a certain church. I uh, I do have a Bible, and uh, uh, you know, at some point he says, "Would you shut up and tell me, are you a Christian or not?" 
Can you tell me that you're a Christian? If somebody were to ask you that question, can you say, I am a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in His Word, I stand upon those things? Yes, I am. What do you want to know about Jesus? Well, I'll tell you. Up front, clear about our relationship with Jesus from the start. See, Paul had a testimony. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. Turn to Acts 20. And I want you to see this part of his testimony here. In Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17, Paul is getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He believes that the Lord is going to take him there. He is bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Everybody's telling him, don't go because there's trouble awaiting you there. Paul is saying, I've got to go because the Lord has bound me to go. So now he meets with the Ephesian elders there in, in, in Miletus. It says, for Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, listen carefully. Paul says to them, you know from the first day. It wasn't a week later. It wasn't a month later. From the first day that I came to Asia. Then he says, in what manner I always lived among you. From the first day you knew. In what manner I always lived among you, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. And then notice verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful. I don't want to string anybody along for a week or two weeks or two months or two years until finally I think that I've softened you up enough and now I'll tell you the gospel. Paul said, I kept back nothing from the very beginning that was helpful, and notice what he said, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they needed to hear on the first day. That's what we need to preach from the first day. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I didn't wait from the very first day you knew. That should be our testimony of being a Christian. And so now, getting back to Lystra, getting back to this deification going on, you know, and Paul and Barnabas being called Hermes and, and Zeus. Now things begin to make sense. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, in other words, they understood now what was going on, they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude. As if to say, you know, all of a sudden they're tearing their clothes and going up to them and saying, look, we're just like you. We're not hiding you. We're not like these gods that you think come down here, you know, in, in the form of man, but they're really some kind of, you know, phantom or something. He, they ran in, they tore their clothes, and they ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Man, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Paul didn't mince words. He went straight at him and he says, What you're doing with this idolatry, with this deification of men, this is useless. It's worthless. It's vain. It's wrong. And then he says, 
You should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Didn't matter what Paul said, they were still going to do what they weren't going to do. They weren't even listening any longer to Paul. So not knowing the language of the dialect at first, once they realized the people were recognizing them as gods and idols, Paul and Barnabas reacted graphically and convincingly by rending their clothes or tearing their clothes. And this they did for two reasons. First of all, it was to show that they were completely human, just as the Lyconians. They had the same nature as them. They had the same kind of heart in the sense that they had feelings, they had infirmities, they had temptations, they had sufferings. We're just like you. Secondly though, and most importantly, out of an instinctively Jewish reaction to a dreadful blasphemy. That is the reason why they tore their clothes. Out of an instinctively Jewish reaction to a dreadful blasphemy. You see, it wasn't just an inconvenience that they were called gods. It was blasphemous. And they didn't want to have anything to do with that. And I tell you what, this also shows one of the problems connected with the sign gifts. You know, sign gifts like speaking in tongues and, you know, things. But healings is a sign gift. You know, there's something that happens people can see. You know, people are far more taken with the healing and healers than with the gospel. That's a problem even in our day and time. People are far more taken with healing and healers than with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there may have been some conversions in Lystra. This may have been the time when, when Timothy and his mother Eunice and, and his uh, grandmother Lois had received you know, the, the gospel. But at this point, none are recorded here. In fact, it was all pretty confusing. And even the gospel preached by Paul was limited in scope at this particular time. There wasn't much that he could say. And it's not that he didn't know what to say. It's it just that the, the, the situation was totally different. Go back to the man that was healed in Jerusalem. When he goes in with, with Peter and, and John, leaping and walking, praising God, the Jewish people all came to, to him and they said, what's, what's this all about? What is happening? They all spoke the same language. So Peter got up and he preached the gospel of Jesus. But here Paul is you know, having to have someone probably tell him, what, what, is, what does everybody say? Well, you're God's. Well... Quite a different situation here. And so he's having to deal with with this lack of communication as it were. But he gives them what needs to be given to them. About a living God who is alone the creator of heaven and earth and sea and all that's in them. Who even at one point in time in bygone generations allowed nations to walk in their ways. Nonetheless he's still a good God. So so that was the limit in the scope of what he said. But he also used very strong words to condemn the paganism of Lystra. You know, he says you should turn from these useless things. You know, vanities is how the King James Version uh, translates the useless things. But vanities are those things that are without purpose, they're without truth and without success. And we are called to turn from those kind of worthless things ourselves. Things that are without purpose, without truth, and without success. 
Paul talks about us receiving rewards for, you know, for our time here on, on, in this life. You know, gold, silver, precious, jewels, wood, hay, and stubble. Now, I would hope and pray that in your particular treasury, you're building up on silver and gold and precious jewels. But we've all had wood, hay, and stubble. Just things in this life that happen that are of no great importance. Eventually, those things, when we face our, our time before the Lord, those things are going to be burned up because we can't take them with us. But here, you know, they're, 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 these are even more worthless things because they're taking people away from the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. By the way, Paul wasn't concerned with being diplomatic. He wasn't concerned with being politically correct. He was concerned with exposing error. And as a missionary working in a pagan culture, Paul confronted the emptiness and the worthlessness of idolatry head on, mentioning to them that the very things that uh, the people thought Zeus would bring them were actually the blessings that come from the one true and living God who created all things for His glory and honor. And even though the Lord could have made a swift and sudden end of it all as He did in Noah's day and in Lot's day, Instead, he turned his back on the nations and allowed them to go their own ways. Please listen carefully to this thought. He turned his back on nations and allowed them to go their own ways. That's verse 16. You see that? Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. In doing so, they would reap the natural and eternal consequences of their folly and sin. But you know what the alternative was? The alternative was judgment. And judgment is indeed coming. But God is patient and God is long-suffering. I mean, this, this is way beyond our comprehension. God has, has turned His back, you know, in the sense that man has gone on their own way because they wanted to. But He could have judged them right on the spot. See, the point of the matter is that now the gospel is to go out to these pagans because of God's mercy, because of God's grace, because of God's patience, because of God's long-suffering. This is why Peter in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Will all come to repentance? No. There are some people who have died, you know, just with anger toward God. They have died saying, I don't want anything to do with God. There was no deathbed conversion for many people. And they will be judged eternally for that. But here's the thought that you need to take with you. If men have chosen to walk in their own ways, listen carefully, If men have chosen to walk in their own ways and God allows it because of His long-suffering, then the problems in our world can be laid upon the human race and not God. The problems can be laid on the human race and not God. Even people who don't believe in God blame things on God. Isn't that a crazy thing? Even people that call themselves atheists or agnostics, they still blame God with everything. It's God's fault. Even our meteorologists. (laughs) It's an act of God. Sometimes it is. But the fact of the matter is this. 
Don't blame him for the suffering in the world. Don't blame God for the suffering in the world. Man chose to go his own way. And so then he says in verse 17, notice, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Even though man rejects him, God goes on being good. You know, it's a question of a believer saying to God, Lord, why is it that the heathen prosper and, 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 and the believer, you know, suffers? In, in many cases, this was a question asked to God. Why does the heathen prosper? God goes on being good. There is that act of general grace upon this earth. As much as men have tried to deny God and eliminate God, He continues to witness to them in the orderly processes of the natural world that we all, that we all depend upon. Of good, of rain, of fruitful seasons, of food and joy and gladness. I mean, their cultures today, just because they're not Christians, doesn't mean that, they're, you know, that they mope about. They, they have joy of some sort. They have some happiness. It's, it's kind of limited happiness, you know, for the believer in Jesus Christ. Our joy is based upon the work of Jesus on the cross and in His resurrection. So our joy is, is you know, is, is an eternal thing. But the other nations and other peoples have joy. I mean, you know, listen, you drive by, you know, all these weird, you know, nightclubs and bars and stuff, and people are playing music. Of course, they're getting soused out of their mind but you know the fact of the matter is they're, they're trying to be happy but they're not joyful in Christ those of us who have been on both sides of that understand you see in James 1.17 it says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning every good and every perfect gift is from above Psalm 25, verse 8, Paul, uh, I should say David says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore He teaches sinners in the way. Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. God is good. It's not a deceptive thing if we take our kids and teach them that song, you know, God is great, God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. Because it's real, it's true. God is good. And even with everything that Paul said to the people there in Lystra that day, Paul and Barnabas had an extremely difficult time challenging those wrong conceptions of God that were held by the Lystrans. Acts 14 verse 18 says, And with these sayings they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing. So they brought all these sacrifices and they were doing it right there in front of Paul and Barnabas. Now, what had been forgotten by the people, listen carefully, what had been forgotten were the miracle and the message. The miracle was forgotten, the message was forgotten. And it is quite possible that resentment began to spring up due to the insult to their gods and the mockery as they perceived it of their worship. When Paul said, you need to turn from these useless things to the true and living God. So there may have been resentment but add to that now the anger of certain Jewish people from about a hundred miles away. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium who were intent on executing Paul and Barnabas 
Listen, they come back into the picture in verse 19. It says, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes. There had to be some talk. What's going on here? What's happening? Well, you know, we, we, we brought all of these sacrifices to, you know, to Hermes and to Zeus. Uh, but they call themselves Paul and Barnabas. Ah, were they here earlier? Were they preaching uh, uh, Jesus Christ? Oh, well, we heard something about that. Well, we really, well, you know, we've kind of been hunting them down, you know, because they're pretty bad news. And notice now, they're, you know, here they are standing before you, and you're still sacrificing to them. That's not right. They began to persuade the multitudes. What did they do? They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and he went into the city. (laughs) Paul just didn't have the sense to be dead. Didn't have the sense to call call it quits. You know, if you get stoned... And we're not talking about, you know, the 20th century understanding of being stoned. We're talking about really getting hit by a bunch of big rocks. When you get stoned in that particular sense, you're usually dead at the end of it all. And it says they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, quite possibly Timothy, Eunice, and Lois, among them, it says that he arose and went back into the city. The next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. I know that Paul and Barnabas weren't living to please people. I know this. But there's a lesson here about trying to be people pleasers. If you're living to be a people pleaser, you will be greatly disappointed. One moment, you're a God. The next, you're dead meat. The problem is that people are fickle and are going to change all the time. It is best that we learn to please God and not worry what people think. Colossians 3, verses 22 through 24, Paul says, Bondservants, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. In other words, doing things so you can be seen, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But we know that Paul and Barnabas weren't there to please men. Nonetheless, the Jews incited the people of Lystra against the apostles. They instigated the stoning of Paul with the rocks being thrown by the same people who wanted to worship them a short time before. I wouldn't doubt that the Jews actually came and told the people, listen, you guys go ahead and throw the rocks. They would stand back. Sound familiar? It sounds like Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus at the stoning of another person called Stephen. But you see, by God's grace, Paul was miraculously preserved. There are those actually who believe that he died and then was really raised to life again. I tend to think that too. Disciples gathered around him. There must have been some thought in Paul at some point in time. 
about that same stoning? How interesting. I had Stephen stoned and I stood back. I gathered the cloaks. Now these Jews have come and incited the Lystrians to stone us or stone me. I want to leave you with a thought about this. We'll pick up with Paul going back into the city next time. But I have a question. Would the results of this stoning help anyone? The results, in other words, him being considered dead and then him getting up and going back into the city. Would this, would this result help anyone? I just want to leave this with you. It helps Two people. Well, it helps one person and, and, the, and, and a lot of people. The first person is, was to help Paul, or I should say Timothy. The second is to help us. The results of this stoning. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul had said this in his last days before he goes to his, to his eternal home. Paul said to Timothy, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, and then notice verse 11, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This was to help Paul, uh, Timothy. You know why? Timothy was going through a rough time in ministry. There was a lot of things that Timothy was struggling with because of being a young man in, the, in, the, in a leadership role in the church. And Paul is saying to him, listen, you know what happened to me, but I, pers- I, I, I personally endured these things because out of them all the Lord delivered me. You're going to go through those times of trials, Timothy. You will suffer those persecutions, but God will deliver you out of them all. How does it help us? Well, that helps us, but so does 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, because you see, this is that passage we read from where we read earlier in 2 Timothy 12. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. When Paul said, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. But notice verse 10. He says, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That needs to help us here. Because you see... Paul isn't saying that he had pleasure in the pain, the pleasure in the infirmities themselves. His pleasure was in the fact that even though he had to go through all of these things, he did so for Christ's sake and not for himself. It wasn't as if he was put upon some pedestal, you know, to suffer for his own sake. No, he suffered for the sake of Christ and for the sake of Christ's kingdom. And he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because it's not about me, it's about Christ. It's not about my strength, it's about His strength. It's not about my wisdom, it's about His wisdom. It's not about my word, it's His word. It's everything about Christ and nothing about me. When I'm weak, then I'm strong.
And no matter what I endure, I can endure it because of Christ who lives in me. And that's the lesson. We want to pick up here next time with, the, with that thought of that stoning and, and realize, you know, wow, would we have walked the other way? Paul gets up there, first of all, everybody's amazed. Wow, he's alive. Paul, you're going the wrong way. That's the direction where they stoned you. That's where he went. We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray.